Okay, Exodus chapter 12, reading from verse 1. This is God's word. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbour shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that, anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened, from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread, until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans, And kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin. And touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. 
And when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? You shall say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so. As the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone. And bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in the cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favour in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. Amen. I'm going to ask Tim to come up. Thank you very much. Be really helpful if you uh, keep that passage open in front of you. Uh, let me pray. Our Father, as we come now to your word and we're coming at the end of a, a week, end of a day, uh, end of a journey, tired, we pray that uh, as we turn to your word that your spirit would energize us, uh, that we might listen well. But more than that, we pray that uh, in the power of your spirit, you would speak to us through your word to challenge us and to comfort us in Jesus name. Amen. A few years ago, uh, Neil McGregor, who was then the director of the British Museum, uh, gave a series of radio talks on Radio 4. I'm not quite sure if I've got my audience here. Uh, Any Radio 4 fans? I uh, gave a series of talks on Radio 4 called A History of the World in a Hundred Objects. And uh, then became a very uh, successful book. And, as you might have guessed, what uh, McGregor did was tell the history of the world uh, in, a, in a hundred objects. I think there was a one show per object. They were all objects from the British Museum. And sort of to collectively together, they told the world's history. Well, I want to do something similar over this weekend. I want to tell the history of the world 
in five meals. Uh, every, every session, we're going to look at a meal from the book of Exodus. Five meals altogether. And uh, doing that, I think, will give us a window onto the message of this book. Uh, but actually, more than that, these meals are going to tell us the story of salvation. In fact, probably even more than that, the purposes of God in history, throughout history, what it means to be his people. Five meals. First meal, Passover meal. Let's set the scene. God's people are uh, Israel, are slaves in Egypt. But God has met with Moses at the burning bush, remember that story? And called on Moses to, to lead his people to freedom. So Moses has gone to Pharaoh, demanded that God set his people free, but Pharaoh refuses. And so God sends terrible plagues on Egypt. First of all, the Nile, the river Nile upon which Egypt depended, is turned to blood. Uh, then the land is infested with frogs and gnats, flies. Then the livestock dies. The people are covered in boils. Violent hail falls from the sky. Locusts devour crops. Darkness falls over the land. Nine plagues. But still, Pharaoh refuses to let God's people go free. And so God sends, sends a tenth and final plague, the death of every firstborn son. And then as we read, God tells Israel to slaughter a lamb and daub its blood over the door of their houses. Wherever God sees the blood, he will pass over that house. That house remains, or everybody in it, remains untouched. Look there at verse 23. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway. He will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Meanwhile, everywhere else in Egypt, as the Lord passes through, he strikes down their firstborn. Verse 29, at midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner, who was in the dungeon. The firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. And if you could imagine that really, imagine that at some point in the night a lone cry went up in Egypt as some family discovered that their firstborn son was dead. And then there was another cry and then another cry. And then perhaps roused by these cries, other families woke up. Until there's this just wail going across the whole land. And the impact on Pharaoh is immediate. He doesn't even wait till morning. Verse 31, during the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go, worship the Lord as you have requested up, leave, go. Couldn't be clearer, could it? This was a man who up until now had resisted all their claims to all their requests to leave. Now he's demanding that they go. God's people are free. It's a great example of God's concern for the poor. 
hears the desperate cry of his people and comes to their rescue. He sides with the oppressed and fights on their behalf. But this story is so much more than a kind of case study in social justice. The Exodus is, as it were, the kind of grammar and vocabulary that the Bible uses to talk about our salvation. And so everywhere else you go in the Bible, the Bible is using the, the grammar, the, the vocabulary that from this story to describe God's great purpose of salvation. So what we see, first of all, is that the slavery of Israel in Egypt is a picture of humanity's slavery to sin. And so Christ, our liberator, sets us free, not just from human oppression, but from the tyranny of sin. And that becomes explicit in the New Testament. In fact, our reading in 1 Peter talks in those terms how We have been redeemed through the blood of Christ, the firstborn, a lamb without blemish. But there are signs of this here in the book of Exodus itself. There's a sense in which every act of liberation is a kind of picture of Christ's liberation, but the Exodus was designed with that in in mind for that purpose. And I want to track just one, one dimension of this. And uh, it is that we are saved for service. That's the principle. Back in Exodus chapter 1, we read the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and all kinds of work in the fields. In their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. That's That's a good attempt at translating that into English. But actually, that verse, those two verses, use the same word five times. So this is a guy called Ross Blackburn's attempt to kind of bring that out, have that sense of that. So this is his attempt. The Egyptians forced the sons of Israel to serve with violence or under violence, through violence. They caused their lives to be bitter with hard service, with mortar and with brick and with all kinds of service in the field, in all their service with which they served through violence. It's the same word gets used a couple of times later in chapter 2, the Israel's in my translation, it says the Israels groaned in their slavery. It's, their, it's the same word, their slavery, their service, and cried out. And their cry for help because of their service, their slavery, went up to God. So it kind of conveys this, the misery of life under Pharaoh's rule. Service, 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 five times. Then again, service, service. But here's the thing. That same word the word that keeps getting used to describe the bitterness of their slavery is the word that is also used of their worship of God. Exactly the same word. In chapter 4, God says to Pharaoh, through Moses, let my son go that he may worship me. It's literally that he may serve me. Same word. And again and again, when we move on, when we look at the tabernacle, Again and again, this word is used to describe the service of Israel in the tabernacle. Or if you've got 
Exodus 12 open, have a look at verse 25. Same word again. When you enter the land that the Lord your God will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. It's literally observe this service. Verse 26, same again. Your children are going to ask you, what does this service mean to you? Verse 31, Pharaoh says, go worship the Lord. Go serve the Lord as you have requested. So the story of the Exodus is not the story of people moving from slavery to freedom. I mean, that's the Hollywood version, I, I grant you, but that's not Exodus's version. Exodus' version is, this is the story of people moving from slavery to slavery. From slavery to Pharaoh, which is bitter tyranny, to slavery to God, which actually is true freedom. The, the, the goal of Exodus is not self-determination or a democracy or individual rights. The goal of the story of Exodus is worship. That's where it's heading. God's people are liberated so that they might worship him or serve him. That's true of the Israelites. But actually, it's just as true of us as Christians. In Romans 6, we have really Paul's kind of meditation on the story of the Exodus as it is now being fulfilled in Christ. And in, in Romans 6, 22, he says, you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God. You have been set free from the slavery of sin so that you might become slaves to God, just like the first Exodus. Christianity is not a kind of hobby, you know? It's not that you, you, you do your stuff Monday to Friday, have a good time at Saturday, and then, you know, it's your hobby on a Sunday morning is to go to church. Christianity is not a kind of insurance policy against life, you know, ready for life after death, that you're going to cash in at the pearly gates. It is a call to live under the lordship of Christ. There's a call to, to the freedom of being serving God. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, well, hang on a minute, how is that an improvement, you know? All I've done is swap one kind of slavery for another kind of slavery. But here's the thing. The masters are not the same. Saying masters, is that not working in Northern Ireland? I've got to do this northern-southern thing in England, that masters. I don't know how, which, I don't know what, what he said in Northern Ireland. None of you are helping me, so I'll just plow on. <laughs> the masters are not the same. Serving sin leads to tyranny. Serving self leads to tyranny. Serving God leads to joy and love and freedom. Just think what it was like for Adam and Eve in the garden before they switched sides as it were. What was it like to live under the serving God in the garden? It was a life of provision and plenty. The masters are not the same, 
and the rewards are not the same. Paul goes on in Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. When you, when you serve, when, when sin is your master, when you serve sin, this is the wage he pays you, death. But then he says the gift of God is eternal life. So the Passover establishes the principle that we are saved for service. And then the Passover gives us a powerful picture of this, of what this might look like. Now let's take a step back for a moment. Later on in Exodus, we discover how the priests are going to be consecrated to God. And basically this is how it works. Moses slaughters a bull. He splashes its blood around the right ear. To do this around the right way. I'm a bit slow on left and right. Right ear, thumb and toe. And then the ball is cooked and eaten. Anything left over is burned. Now does that sound familiar? Have a look at verse 7 of chapter 12. Then they had to take some of the blood, put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs, That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Then verse 10, do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. Exactly the same procedure. Do you notice that? Just as the consecration of priests is going to involve daubing blood, as it were, around the edge of the person, ear, thumb, toe. So the Passover involves daubing blood round the sides of a home, round the doorframe. And then both involve eating meat with unleavened bread and then burning the leftovers. Same process, same procedure. What's the point? I think it is that in some sense the Passover meal consecrates Israel as a community, as, pri- as a kind of priestly kingdom. It's not that... They all individually become individual priests, but together, as a community, they become priestly. They are consecrated to God. And in fact, that's what precisely what God says when they stand a few chapters later when they stand before him at Sinai. You shall be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God's people, as a community, are consecrated as his holy people. If you're a Christian, you are consecrated as one of God's holy people. You are set apart by God to be holy. Now, what does that mean? I mean, it all sounds rather grand and fancy and everything. But what does it actually look like on the ground? And again, I think the Passover helps us. It helps us put this principle, saved for service, And the picture, consecrated like priests, helps us put it into practice. Have a look at verse 18. In the first chapter, sorry, in the first month, you are to eat bread made without yeast from the evening of the 14th day until the evening of the 21st day. For seven days, no yeast is to be found in your houses. And anyone, whether foreigner or native-born, who eats anything with yeast in it must be cut off from the community of Israel. Eat nothing made with yeast. Wherever you live, you must eat unleavened bread. So just don't eat yeast. That's the thing, okay? 
What's all that about? Today, I don't know how many of you bake bread. I mean, it's just sort of a bit of a trendy thing to do, a bit hipster, you know. I don't know. Uh, if you make break your own bread, your yeast comes in little pots, you know, and you just put a bit in when you need it kind of thing. But in those days, you kept aside a bit of yesterday's dough. And then you added it to the next day's batch. You didn't, you know, you didn't buy yeast from Sainsbury's or whatever. Uh, yesterday's leftover yeast, you put it into today's batch and then it spread throughout that batch of dough, new dough, enabling it to rise. And then just before you baked it, you would take out a little bit, put it aside because you were going to need that the next day. And then you'd bake your bread. You got, you got, you get how that works? Um, some of our, our friends like baking sourdough bread and they have little, these little pots in their, this, you know, of sort of growing. Don't know what I'm talking about. Some of you do. And woe betide you if you wash it up. I mean, that is just, you know, you're never forgiven. What this means is, what that meant was that every new loaf contained a little bit of yesterday's dough. Yesterday's yeast grew and spread into today's batch. Have you got that idea? Now, one reason there was no unleavened bread was there wasn't going to be time. Saw that at the end of the chapter there for the dough to rise. But actually, verse 8, it's all set out, told in advance not to use yeast. It's not just that they run out of time. God gives them this instruction as a kind of picture and a sign that they are leaving behind the life of Egypt for a new life. This is not yesterday's loaf continued, and this is not yesterday's life continued. This, is a, this, this exodus is a fresh start. It's a new beginning. And so you're, you're not cooking with yeast. Because you're leaving that life behind. It's a picture of leaving a life behind. That's why verse 19 says that people who do use yeast are to be cut off from the community of Israel. Now, if that's just about a good recipe for baking bread, that is a bit harsh, isn't it? Imagine Mary Berry or leaf or whoever it is these days saying to the bakers on Great British Bake Off, you know, you've, you've, used, you've used too much yeast no one will ever talk to you again. I guess that is kind of what happens on British Bake Off isn't it? You are sent home. So maybe that illustration doesn't quite work. But no, it's not really about baking. This is about whether someone is still committed to Egypt or whether they are now consecrated to God. The yeast is a kind of picture of leaving behind the life of Egypt. This is what Paul then means when he says in 1 Corinthians 5, it's rather, if you just read it out of the blue, it's a bit of a weird stuff, but once you read it in the light of this story, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, he says, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Not with the old bread of 
malice, it's leavened with malice and wickedness, but the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Leave behind that old way of life, characterized by malice and wickedness. Instead, start a new life. Christ has liberated us through the truth, through the ultimate Passover, from the service of sin, for the service of God. So don't continue in your old way of life. Don't carry on your old habits. Don't let your old life, your new life, sorry, be corrupted by the old ways of malice and wickedness. So let me ask you tonight, is there something from your old life that you need to leave behind? like the yeast of Egypt, some habit perhaps, some attitude, some sinful habit in your life that actually Christ has set you free from. You now need to leave it behind. Or maybe some guilt that has been wiped away at the cross, so you no longer need to carry it. It's time to leave it behind. The Passover is a sign, a picture that God's people, that you have been saved to live a new life, a consecrated life, a life dedicated to God, a life of worship. Again, Romans 6, Paul says, verse 13, Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. I encourage you now, just sort of as a, this is a mental exercise, to kind of move around your body, just to, in your, with your mind. And ask yourself, am I offering this part of me as an instrument of wickedness? Offering it to sin as an instrument of wickedness or offering it to God as an instrument of righteousness? Your mouth, what you say. Your eyes and your ears, what you see and hear. Your heart, what you love. Your hands, what you do, what you serve. Your feet, where you go. The wallet in your pocket, what you give. The phone in your other pocket. All of the above. I mean, really, it's what you say, what you see, what you love, what you do. Even where you go, I guess. Let's take a moment. Think about it. Perhaps there's one part of yourself, as Paul puts it, that you need to consecrate fresh to God tonight. Or one habit that you need to leave behind, like the yeast of Egypt. Remember, slavery of sin, sorry, the service of sin, is slavery and death. The service of God is freedom and life. 
Passover is a picture of redemption from sin. But also what we see here is the Passover is a picture of redemption from death. Again, if you've got your Bibles open, just look with me at chapter 11, verses 4 to 6. I just Moses said, this is what the Lord says, About midnight I will pass throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son of Egypt will die from the firstborn son of Pharaoh, sits on the throne, firstborn son of the female slave who is at her handmill, from the highest to the lowest, and firstborn cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt. And then jump with me to chapter 12, verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner, who's in his dungeon, so different version of the lowest, but still the same idea, from the highest to the lowest, and firstborn of all the livestock as well, and then Pharaoh and his officials get up, and there is loud wailing in Egypt. Can you see all the parallels there? It's pretty much sort of almost the same kind of thing, really. Midnight, firstborn, highest to lowest, livestock, wailing. Moses says what will happen in chapter 11, and then in chapter 12, it happens. Israel can go free, job done, on we go with the story. So what is the point of all the stuff in between? Why don't we just go from 11 verse 6 to chapter 12 verse 29? If this was a, just a story of political liberation, then the guilty Egyptian oppressors, oppressors would be judged and the innocent Israelite oppressed would go free. The problem is the people of Israel are not innocent. Now, of course, in terms of their working conditions, they are the those who are oppressed. They're not the oppressors. But in other respects, they're as sinful as everyone else. They can't claim any moral superiority. They, too, deserve God's judgment. They, too, are guilty of sin. They, too, deserve to die. When the destroyer passes through Egypt... They're in as much danger as everyone else. They're, they're in the firing line, just like the Egyptians. The problem of sin is not just its power, but its penalty. It doesn't just lead to slavery, it leads to judgment, and that judgment is death. So Israel are just as much in the firing line. But God in his grace provides a way of escape. He provides a lamb. When morning breaks, death has visited every home in the land of Egypt. In fact, I was just struck reading it, verse 30. That's exactly what the text says. There was not a house without somebody dead, although I think it is referring to the Egyptian there. Every home, no one is immune. Something has died in every single home, Egyptian and Israelite. In Egyptian homes, it is the firstborn son. In Israelite homes, it is a lamb. But someone has died. And the point is that, that the lamb dies in the place of the Israelite families. In, in the Bible, blood is a sign of a life poured out. 
a life violently ended. So the, la- the blood daubed around the door frames is a sign that something has died in this home. In this home, the price of sin has been paid. In this home, the penalty of death has already been passed. In chapter 11, verse 7, Moses says to Pharaoh, then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. What is that distinction? What's the difference between Israelites and Egyptians? It's not their ethnicity. One of the interesting little sort of sidelines in this whole story is that when the Israelites leave, a whole mixed bundle of ethnicities go with them. It's not ethnicity. What's the distinction? It's certainly not holiness. Don't have to read very long into the book of Exodus to discover that Israel are no more holy than the Egyptians. What is it that marks out God's people? What is the distinction? Blood. That's the answer. Blood. Blood on the doorframe. The blood of the Passover lamb. Verse 13. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. The blood is the sign. Centuries later, John the Baptist sees the Lord Jesus and says, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Look, the Lamb of God. The Lamb, the Passover Lamb, was only ever a picture. A dead animal cannot deal with human sin. It's only ever a picture pointing forward to Jesus, the firstborn Son of God. Jesus dies in our place to rescue us from death, from the penalty of sin. His blood, daubed as it were, over our lives, is the promise of eternal life. Everyone lives with the fear of death. Many people try to ignore it. Some people become obsessed with staying fit. So they go off to the gym, or they read the latest diet books. Everyone has their theory as to what little I was talking about it with a group a couple of days ago. What everyone had everyone had been reading some book about health and had their little theory about what you were not supposed to eat or were supposed to eat. But the reality is, I know it might seem a long way for most of you, but old age catches up with you. Or cancer takes you by surprise. We find that death is nearer than we thought. There is every chance, almost inevitably, in a group like this, that death is a reality for some of you in your families at this moment. What do we do when death is a sort of dark cloud over our lives? Oh, we listen to John the Baptist. What did John the Baptist say? Look. The Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. Look. Look look to Jesus. Look to Jesus, the Lamb of God. Look to Jesus, who has risen 
as the beginning and the promise of eternal life, of your eternal life, if you put your trust in him. There's only one way to face death with confidence, and that is to look to Jesus. Death is the dark cloud on everyone's horizon. But Jesus is the sunshine beyond that cloud. When the destroyer, as Exodus 12 puts it, when the destroyer comes, as he will, for all humanity, where is their, where is, where is their refuge? Under the blood. Under the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So how should we respond to this good news of redemption from sin and rescue from death? Well, the number one answer is turn to Christ. Look to Christ. Find refuge in his blood. Turn to him and find life. But let me suggest another application from this chapter. Because I have to be honest with you, Exodus 12 is a funny chapter. I don't know if you felt that as we were reading it earlier. It's a funny chapter, isn't it? Maybe it would have helped if we'd read chapter 11. Chapter 11, the conflict between Pharaoh and Moses has kind of reached fever pitch. And in fact, there's a moment where Moses storms out and and the Exodus 11 says he is hot with anger. So, I mean, that's a pretty stormy kind of uh, encounter. And then, boom, what comes next? A calendar change. Chapter 12, verse 1, this month will be for you. The first, chapter verse 2, this month will be the... Yeah. It's a bit of an anticlimax. It's a bit like watching a movie, and we've, we've had a fight scene, and we've had a car chase, and we're about to hit the climax of the movie, and what do we... We see the hero doing his expenses. But by the way, here, you know, presumably secret agents do do their expenses at some point, but anyway, and charge their mobile phones, whatever. And then the rest of the chapter kind of seesaws backwards and forwards between preparations for the Passover and all this stuff about the commemoration of the Passover, an event that hasn't even happened yet. And you might think, well, all of that was kind of added in later, but no, verse... Uh, verse 1 tells us that this is what the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt. This wasn't sort of, oh, by the way, later on, it'd be a good idea to remember this. No, this, all this stuff about how it's to be commemorated is told to them in Egypt before they've even left. I think we get a feel for why this is so important in verses 26 and 27, when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. This event is going to form the identity, not just of this generation, but of all the future generations of Israelites. Who is God? He is the Lord who redeemed us from slavery. Every generation of Israelite is going to answer. Who are we? We are the people that the Lord redeemed from Israel, from Egypt. And eating the Passover meal kind of involves you in this event. Future generations, as it were, are going to participate in the Exodus, even though it took place generations before, by participating in the Passover. 
So much so that Moses, uh, sorry, that David can say, at one point he says in the Psalm 18, he drew me out of the waters. He's talking about passing through the Red Sea, but he wasn't there. But he's kind of participated in this in event through the Passover. What God accomplished in the past will become a present identity, a present reality for future generations as they eat this meal together. And of course, when we come to the New Testament, we find that the Lord's Supper has the fingerprints of the Passover all over it. Particularly in Luke's Gospel. In fact, Luke's account of, you just have to look it up later, that Luke's account of the Lord's Supper, he just keeps mentioning Passover. I'm about seven times in, in the chapter. He keeps mentioning the Passover. The Passover meal is fulfilled in the Lord's Supper because the Passover event is about to be fulfilled at the cross. Jesus, the Passover lamb, is about to die to liberate his people, to liberate us from sin and death. And then he gives us, in fact, again, before the event has even taken place, he gives us the Lord's Supper as a commemoration of that. To shape our identity, to shape your identity, just like the Passover. As the children in your church see you taking communion, they are meant to ask, as they do in Exodus 12, what does this ceremony mean for you? What are you going to tell them? And like the Passover, this eating this meal involves us in the event. What God accomplished 2,000 years ago on the cross becomes part of our identity, part of our experience as we take bread and wine. We feel afresh the reality of what Christ has accomplished at the cross. I do want you to treasure the Lord's Supper, those of you who are Christians, and to see it as this moment that kind of forms your identity, our identity, as God's redeemed people. We are to be shaped by the Supper. Our first meal. It reminds us who Christ is. Our Redeemer. Our Passover Lamb. Who died in our place. To set us free. It reminds us who we are. God's redeemed people. Saved for service. Consecrated to him those who have left behind the old way of life. Let me pray. Father, I pray for us, for my brothers and sisters in the room. I pray that uh, we might live as those who have been set free from sin and from slavery. Uh, over whom sin no longer has a hold, uh, but also those who have been set free for service, for that service of you which is true freedom, that we might be dedicated to you, leaving behind our old way of life. And as we've been thinking this evening, perhaps there have been, each one of us perhaps has had thinking about some habit, some attitude, 
that we need to leave behind. And Father, we pray that by now, by your Spirit, you would give us a new desire and resolution, a new power to leave that life behind and embrace the life that is true freedom, the service that is true freedom. We pray too that we might live as those who have been redeemed from death, who live without fear because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to pray too, we pray that as we take communion in our local churches, in whatever form that is, it might be an event that we treasure, that forms our identity, in which again and again we see ourselves as your redeemed people who have been set free by our Passover lamb, who have taken refuge under his blood and who are now dedicated to his service. In Jesus' name, amen.